All right, good morning. Good morning. As you guys are finding your seat, I'll get started here. So um, I'll be with you guys for a couple weeks now, sharing the word. Um, Try has not been fired. He's, he's not on vacation. He's actually, uh, you know, there's just a lot, of, a lot of things that he's been wanting to do ministry-wise, and he's just kind of been, been kind of unable to focus on some of those things, so we just thought this would be a good opportunity for him to re- redirect his focus on some of those other ministry needs, and, and I'd free up a little of his, his time to do that uh, by preparing a sermon. So you're stuck with me for a couple weeks, and then, and then uh, in February, probably a couple more maybe. We'll see. Um, all right. Well, good news. I mean, were you guys here last week when Christian tes- uh, kind of shared his testimony about his trip to Argentina? Wasn't that neat? It's super inspiring. I'll tell you, I was super inspired when he's talking about a three-hour church service. <laughs> so, so get comfortable. Get comfortable. Um, now, here's, here's what I want to do today. Uh, in, in true Ben Keller fashion, we're going to go through a whole bunch of books of the Bible or, or chapters of, of the Bible. Um, we're going to cover a lot of ground, but don't be intimidated by that. Actually, what we're going to do is kind of a, a really high elevation view of Joseph's life. And we're going to kind of take a look at his history, his life, and then kind of figure out, okay, what's some application we can pull from that? Now, in reality, I could just skip straight to the application and, and preach the application from God's Word. Um, and, and oftentimes we'll do that, and it's, you know, the New Testament kind of does that. The New Testament really just takes the application from the Old Testament and kind of explains it to us on how we can live with that. But I think it's really important for us to spend some time in the Old Testament learning and understanding and, and appreciating the characters of the Old Testament because it's not just the history of the Bible, it's the Bible's history of us, right? That's, that's our history, your history and my history. Joseph is part of our lineage. So it's, it's important for us to be able to step back and, and look at these people who lived before us and then be able to glean some, some lessons from their lives. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, we're going to spend some time looking at Joseph's life. And Joseph's story begins in Genesis chapter 37. Now, we're not going to camp out in any particular passage. But if you want to follow through uh, as we kind of cruise through these chapters of Genesis, you're welcome to. But we see in Genesis chapter 7... Um, Joseph is the son of Jacob. Jacob's the son of, of uh, Isaac and, and Abraham. And, and so they're the, kind of the, the forefathers, right, of, of the nation of Israel, the four forefathers. Um, Joseph, though, we see he was only 17 years old and was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. So you see, Joseph... I, he comes across as just kind of this innocent kid who um, just kind of says what he's thinking, and, and he kind of rubs some people the wrong way, particularly his brothers. We see that his brothers are actually offended. Joseph has this dream about his family bowing down to him. And that might be something you just keep to yourself when, when you have that dream. Instead of telling your brothers that, hey, I have this dream, you're going to bow down to me. It might be something you keep to yourself, but Joseph doesn't. He tells his brothers, and it just grows this infuriation his brothers have for him. His brothers just do not like Joseph. We're told that Joseph is his father's favorite. That doesn't help matters. So Joseph's brothers, they, they have enough, and they decide they're going to get rid of Joseph, but instead of killing him, big brother Reuben says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just put him in this pit. And then we'll kind of make him think we're going to leave him to die. And then Reuben's going to come get him later. Well, Reuben comes to get him later and turns out the rest of the brothers actually sold him into slavery. So Joseph is sold into slavery and takes off. And then the brothers come up with this, well, shoot, what are we going to tell our dad? You know, I mean, what, what are we going to tell dad? So they come up with this plan. Okay, well, let's, let's dip his coat, his pretty coat of many colors that dad gave him. Let's dip it in blood and then tell dad that uh, a wild animal just destroyed Joseph. So that's the plan they come up with. They... they um, tell their dad this lie about Joseph being killed. And meanwhile, Joseph is, is on the road with this slave trader caravan to Egypt. And that takes us to chapter 39, actually. So, so sequentially, chapter 38, 
dovetails off into another story, not related to Joseph, but his big brother Judah and um, Tamar. But, but we're going to skip to chapter 39. So Joseph is hauled to Egypt. He's sold into Potiphar's household. Potiphar is the captain of Pharaoh's guard, a very wealthy man, very powerful man. And very quickly, we see that Joseph rises to power. He gains significant authority. And what's interesting in chapter 39, in verse 2, we see that the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He rose to success very quickly in Potiphar's house. But one problem was that Potiphar's wife kind of had an eye for Joseph. Joseph's this handsome young man. He's rising to power quickly, very attractive. Potiphar's wife says, hey, I want me some of that, right? And, and so Joseph does his best to, to kind of stay away from it. But one day when it's just Joseph and Potiphar's wife in the household, she makes a pass at him. And he tries to, he tries to resist her, but she ends up with his coat in his hands. And then she comes up with the story and tells the household and eventually her husband that it was Joseph who made a pass at her and, and accosted her, assaulted her. So Potiphar then says, well, we can't have that. So he sends Joseph to prison. Joseph goes off to prison, but it's not real prison. It's more like Martha Stewart-style prison, right? It's, it's the prison that where the king puts the people he's unhappy with. So Joseph is in this kind of soft prison, but it's still prison. It's not somewhere he wants to be, right? And while he's there, we see again, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, and he found favor in the prison guard's um, kind of elevation of authority. So again, Joseph rises to power within the prison. He's kind of running things. They made a show about this called Mayor of Kingstown. I don't know if you guys have seen that. I'm kidding. Don't watch that show and then say, man, that doesn't make sense. It won't make sense. Those of you who have seen it, you kind of know what I'm saying. All right. So Joseph, again, rises to power very quickly within the prison. But he's in prison, so that's no good. What we're seeing here is there's this pattern in Joseph's life where things are great, then things stink. Then things are good, then things stink. This, this up and down. But we see that continually throughout it, the Lord is with Joseph. We get to chapter, or, uh, chapter 40, and these two guys are sent into prison with Joseph. Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. I don't know what happened with these guys, but there's some mix-up with them. I think, I think it's kind of like this. I think it's, it's you know, when, when you get in trouble with Dad, and he says, oh, I'll tell you what, until you guys are ready to confess to me who actually did it, you're both grounded. I think that's kind of what's going on with these guys. I think Pharaoh sent these guys both to prison, says, you guys, you're grounded until we can figure this out. While they're in prison, Joseph is kind of assigned to take care of these guys. And one day, Joseph recognizes something's off with these two guys. In fact, he says to him, he said, what, what's, what's going on? Why so glum, Joe? Right? They got, they just, there's something bothering them. And they said, well, we had this dream, and we can't figure out what it is. Joseph says, I can help with that. Right? I, I, can, I can maybe help with that. God, God owns the dreams. He'll reveal to us. So Joseph interprets their dreams. He starts with the cupbearer. He says, here's what your dream means. In three days, Pharaoh's going to restore you back to your position of authority, and, and things are going to be good for you. And, and the baker says, well, that, that sounds pretty good. Tell me my dream, too. He says, ah, very similar. In three days, Pharaoh's going to call for you also, but he's going to hang you. Oh, that's kind of a downer, right? Joseph has the tendency to just say things like they are. He, he doesn't really sugarcoat stuff. He just comes out and says it. Um, and sometimes people need that. They just need to hear it, right? That's Joseph's style. He just comes out and says it. So Joseph interprets their dreams, and three days comes, and it exactly like he predicted it would, exactly like he said the dreams would. Pharaoh calls both these men. He restores the, the cupbearer. He executes the baker. Well, before they left prison, when Joseph interprets the cupbearer's dream, he says, do me a favor. Remember me. When you get back before Pharaoh, let him know that I'm here, stuck in this prison. I shouldn't be here. I was falsely accused. I don't belong here. I was taken from my land. I shouldn't be here. And, and we don't see any confirmation that the cupbearer made this promise, but we know he acknowledged it. We see that later on. So he, he, Joseph is expecting that, okay, this is my way out. This was God blessing me with an opportunity to get out of here, right? Well, the cupbearer 
goes back to Pharaoh and forgets all about Joseph. Doesn't say anything to Pharaoh about Joseph. We get to chapter 41. In chapter 41, it's Pharaoh's turn to have a dream. So Pharaoh now has a dream. And Pharaoh's dream is, is kind of complicated. It's kind of crazy. Got these seven fat cows who, who just look wonderful and plump and, and like you'd want a, a cow to look. And then there's these seven skinny, ugly-looking cows that come up, and they eat the fat cows, right? Doesn't make any sense. He also has a dream where he's got these seven crops of corn that look great, and then, and then these, these dingy, cruddy-looking corn that, that kind of consume the other ears of corn. And no one understands, and Pharaoh's trying to figure this out, and he calls everybody, all his dream interpreters or magicians, whatever their case may be, and, and no, one can, no one can figure out. No one can tell Pharaoh what this means. Suddenly, the cupbearer's like, oh, Joseph, I, I totally forgot. Pharaoh, I totally forgot about this kid named Joseph. Two years ago, when I was in prison, this kid, this young Hebrew man, he interpreted my dream. Me and, me and the baker also. You remember the baker, right? And, and so... Pharaoh says, well, bring him here. Let's see what he can do. So they go get Joseph. They say, hey, Joseph, Pharaoh wants to see you. But interestingly, before Joseph would go before Pharaoh, we see that he, he shaves his head, which would not be a Hebrew thing, but an Egyptian, Egyptian thing. He shaves his head to look like an Egyptian. He, he changes his clothes to dress like an Egyptian. I think they even told him to, to walk like an Egyptian. Never mind. I wonder. Um, so, 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 Joseph completely changes his appearance, and he goes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, well, not me, but God. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph acknowledges it's not his strength, it's not his insider ability, but God will use Joseph. And so through Joseph, God interprets Pharaoh's dream. And we see that it was not just that God interpreted Pharaoh's dream, but God actually gave Pharaoh this dream as a message to Pharaoh. And the message is this. Joseph tells him, the seven fat cows or the seven good years of corn represent seven prosperous years, seven years of abundance where the land will prosper and, and be wonderful and we'll, we'll have more than we need. But then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine, ugly, horrible, hard years that would wear us out. And he says, and, and since you've seen this dream twice, once with the corn and once with the cattle, that means God is affirming that this is going to happen you need to prepare, Pharaoh. God's telling you this so you can prepare. What you need to do, Pharaoh, is to appoint a man who can make preparations. Appoint a man who can, who can organize life for the next seven years so that we kind of put some saving away, so we can harvest enough crops that we can store some away. That's what you need to do, Pharaoh. And then, as we hit the seven bad years, that man can, can then distribute and sell some of that to the people who are in need over those seven years because we won't be able to plow. We won't be able to harvest in those seven years. So, Pharaoh, that's what God is telling you. That's what you need to do. He says, so now you just need to appoint a man to do that. Pharaoh says, well, you seem like the guy, right? You seem like you got this all figured out. In fact, he even says, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God. So even Pharaoh recognizes that there is another authority speaking through Joseph. There's a spirit of God in Joseph that's not another man. And why not submit that? Why not give in to that authority to let that authority control what happens to us over these next 14 years? So that's exactly what happened. Joseph very quickly then, like that quick, rises to power in Egypt. He's no longer a slave. He's now in a position of, of ruling over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. That's pretty substantial. That's a big swing in circumstances. We also see in 41 that during this first seven years, Pharaoh, has, or, uh, Pharaoh grants Joseph a wife, Joseph marries. Joseph has a couple of kids. And, and, and it's significant here we see in, in verse 51 of chapter 41, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. 
For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. That's an important little bit of scripture because what that's telling us is that this was weighing on Joseph for a long time. He hadn't forgotten his, his hardships. He hadn't forgotten his father's house. He was enduring the suffering. He was enduring the pain of having been taken from that being stuck in prison, being put in slavery, being falsely accused, being forgotten by the cupbearer. These things were weighing on him. But as his circumstances continued to change, he was able to kind of put that in the past and live beyond that. And then he had a second son, and he called him Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The land of my affliction. This place where I've suffered through misery, God has made me fruitful here. So Joseph recognized that he's in a better place now for his own, his circumstances have improved, right? Joseph is doing okay now. He's, he's in supreme authority. He's got a big house. He's, he's probably got like an 84-inch flat screen TV in his house. I mean, things are good for Joseph. And he recognizes that, that God has, has made this turn in his life. And then we get to the seven years of famine. Famine strikes the land. So, so at this point, we're in chapter 42 of Genesis. Famine not only strikes Egypt, but it kind of strikes all of the localized, civilized world around them, which is also Canaan, where Joseph came from. That's where Jacob and all, all Joseph's brothers are. They're in the land of Canaan. Famine strikes there also. They're running out of food quickly. Jacob says, boys, I hear there's food in Egypt. Go to Egypt and bring back some grain. Bring back some food. Take some silver with you. Bring us some food. We need some food. So that's what the boys do. That's what the brothers do. This would be the older 11 brothers, the ones who, who sold Joseph off into slavery. So these guys travel to Egypt. They say, hey, we're here for some food. We're you can buy food here. They say, yeah, go see that guy over there. That's Joseph. But Joseph now, remember, he's, he's changed his appearance, right? He looks like an Egyptian now. Not only that, but Pharaoh gives him an Egyptian name. I tell it to you, but I can't pronounce it. So He has this completely different name, different appearance. The brothers go before him and they say, hey, we hear you're the guy. And when he sees them, Joseph recognizes his brothers. But they don't recognize him. He looks different, they don't. And also remember, he was only 17 when this happened. He's older now, looks completely different. His identity is concealed. And he kind of plays with his brothers a little bit. He's, I, I can't imagine what that emotion was that he was experiencing. But he stirred up. And so he, he tells him, hey, I know what you guys are up to. You guys are spies in this land. And like, no, we're not spies. No, we're just honest guys. We're, we're just, and first of all, he knows that's not true, right? But secondly, he doesn't reveal himself to them. So he, he, he imprisons them. He, he, he cap, captivates them and says, all right, you guys are here till we figure this out, right? He's just messing with them. But I imagine he's trying to figure out, okay, how am I supposed to react to this? Where are my emotions supposed to be? Should I just cut their heads off? Should I hang them? Should I love them? I imagine Joseph's trying to figure that out. But he doesn't know exactly what to do. So he, he just kind of toys them. And, and what he ends up doing is saying, all right, you leave one of the brothers here. Simeon is going to stay here with me while you guys go and get your brother Benjamin and prove to me that what you're saying is, is true. So that's what they do. They return to the land of Canaan, and the plan is for them to bring their younger brother, Benjamin. Now, Benjamin wasn't born. There was no Benjamin when Joseph was still in the land of Canaan before he was sold into slavery. So remember, at that time, Joseph was Jacob's favorite. He was the youngest. He was the, the son of, of his old age. Well, once Joseph is killed, as far as Jacob knows. Jacob has another son, Benjamin. And, and that's a little side note there. Just when things seem imperfect, God sends a Benjamin. I'm just saying it seems like a biblical pattern here, right? I'm totally kidding. All right. So, so Benjamin is the younger brother, and, and now Jacob has this affinity for Benjamin. Benjamin is that, that kind of reminder that, that God is still good and faithful to him. And, and so the brothers go back and say, hey, Jacob, the man that, that we're supposed to get food from, man, he was hard on us. He spoke harshly to us. He was rough with us. He, he kept Simeon, and he told us, we've got to bring Benjamin back or he's going to keep Simeon, and we're not going to get any more food. 
they, kind of, they don't know exactly what to do with that. They kind of wrestle with it. They eat all the grain that Joseph did send with them. They, they go through all that, and Jacob says, you know what, guys? We got to just do this. You need to go back to Egypt. Go back to Egypt and get more grain. The brothers say, we, if we go back without Benjamin, he's just going to kill us. We got to bring Benjamin with us. So Jacob finally relents. He doesn't want to send Benjamin. He's already lost enough sons. He doesn't want to do that again. But he relents and says, all right, go. So the brothers return to Egypt. They go before Joseph to say, we're back. Here's our younger, younger brother, Benjamin. Joseph welcomes the brothers into his home, which really confuses the brothers. They think this dude is up to something. He, he is toying with us. He is just going to kill us. But he doesn't. In, in fact, he, he starts to talk with Benjamin. And Joseph is just overcome by emotion as he talks to Benjamin. In fact, he has to remove himself from the room and just starts crying. He's like, what do I do here? How do I deal with this situation? And he, he comes up with this idea, and I don't really understand why it is, but he comes up with this idea where he's going to send the brothers away, except he's going to put, he's going to hide the this, this silver in Benjamin's sack. And then he sends the brothers away, and then he sends his guard out after him. And they say, hey, you guys stole something from, from Pharaoh. They say, we didn't steal anything. And they search Benjamin's bag, and sure enough, there it is that, that, that Joseph planted in Benjamin's bag. And and they're like, oh, no, now he's really going to kill us, right? So they go back before Joseph, and they come before Joseph, and they bow before Joseph, just like Joseph dreamed at the very beginning of this. In verse 45, or I'm sorry, in chapter 45, It starts with, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. The emotion of this whole thing is just too much for him. He's weeping aloud and crying. He goes before, he he kicks everyone out of the room except his brothers. And he says to them, "I, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And his brothers at this point, I mean, they have no idea who, that he's Joseph. And he just says this, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? They're in shock. They don't know how to respond. Joseph says, come here. He brings him near to him. He says, listen, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And he gets back to them and he says, but I want to know, is my father still alive? Are you guys just messing with me, telling me that Jacob's still alive, or is he really still alive? They say, yes, he's still alive. Things are good with him. He's old, he's ill, but he's still alive. Joseph tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, hey, bring him. I will give you and your family the choicest of lands, the finest of things here in Egypt. Bring them. They can settle here, reside here. So that's exactly what happens. And we're going to skip several, several chapters here because uh, the, the rest of the book of Genesis is really about Jacob traveling to Egypt. We do see significantly in 46 that Jacob and Joseph are reunited. And what a beautiful reunion that is. Remember, Joseph was his favorite. And, and Joseph loved his father dearly. And here they've been separated for all these years, and finally they're reunited. And it's such a beautiful picture of a father and son coming back together. And I imagine that that was a, just about the highest point of Joseph's life, being reunited with his father. Again, we see this up and down, this misery, this elevation, more misery, more elevation. And the last thing I want to point out in this history of Joseph is even after all this. So, so Jacob comes, they settle. Jacob blesses his sons. Jacob claims Joseph's two oldest sons as his own, Manasseh and Ephraim, and, and blesses them all. And then Jacob passes away. He's an old man. He passes away. And when he passes away, the brothers all like, oh, fear strikes them again because they believed that the only reason Joseph is keeping us alive, the only reason Joseph has treated us well was to get Jacob back here. But now that Jacob's gone, Joseph has no use for us anymore. He's going to off us, right? 
So they come up with another lie, another plan. They tell them, hey, our father said to come to you and say this. Well, that never happened, but they're just trying to save their own butts. So they, they go before, they tell this to Joseph, the story, hey, you're supposed to treat us nicely. And Joseph says to them, and this is in verse, or chapter 50. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There's an important lesson there that we'll get back to. But I like how he started that. He said, do not fear for I am in the place of God. What he meant by that is I'm where God wanted me. I'm where God put me. You guys didn't put me here. God put me here. He had a perfect plan in this. Now, an important part of this is to know that things were wonderful then, right? Joseph kind of lived in harmony in this leadership position with Pharaoh, but that only lasted for so long. Another, another king comes, another Pharaoh who, who doesn't know Joseph and just sees these people as a threat and, and enslaves them. And so all this harmony of the Egyptians and the Hebrews living together goes away with new leadership, and it becomes a miserable place to be. And the, the point there is that the story's never done when we think it's done. All right, that's, that's the history. That's the history of Joseph's life. Now I'm going to start, okay? There's three main points I want to get to today. There's three things I want to glean. Number one is that God is sovereign. Number two is that God is good. And number three, and this one's important, is that God is even more gooder than you, okay? It's a word, trust me. All right. So these are the three main points I want to cover from Joseph's life. God is sovereign. This is actually really kind of the crescendo point. This is the main takeaway, that God is sovereign. But here's the problem. I mean, I'd like to kind of end on this one, but I can't because we can't really understand or accept the other two until we buy into this one first. God is sovereign. We see God's sovereignty play out in the history of Joseph. In the story of Joseph's life, we see how God is orchestrating all these circumstances so that, like Joseph recognized, he could, he could provide for his people in the end. Without God orchestrating these circumstances, it's just a sad story of a kid being sold into slavery and ended up in, in, in a miserable situation. But we see God's sovereignty play out in it. But that's hard to accept sometimes. Even though we can see God's hand in it, we still question, like, but why do he do it that way? Right? I mean, a, a lot of you have been in a situation where you're like, man, I, I, I didn't know why God was putting me through this hard situation, but now I see the good in it. I, I, I trust that God had good in store for me in this hard situation. But me, I really struggle with that sometimes because I say, yeah, but he's God. He is sovereign. He's, he can do anything. He's not bound by anything. So why didn't he just dictate circumstances in a way that I would respond favorably to him without the misery, right? So you look at this story of Joseph, we see, yeah, there's good come out of this. Look, through all these circumstances, God fed his people. God cared for his people through this famine. Why didn't he just send rain, right? Why didn't he just leave Joseph at home with his father, enjoying time hanging out with dad with his pretty coat of many colors, stay there, and then God could have just sent some rain. Seems easier. Seems easier. Seems like Joseph's life wouldn't have been so miserable. So we can understand that God is sovereign. But it's hard to accept why God does things the way he does things. And I don't have an answer for you. I can't tell you why God does it. And if you start struggling with that question you're going to be empty-handed. You're not going to find the reason of why God does it the way he does it. This is not a new question. 
This is a common thing. God's sovereignty, God stands on his own. And we're not in a position where we can question why God does what he does. If we do, we're going to miss out. So the prophet Isaiah had this illustration that God is the potter and we're just the clay. And the apostle Paul wrote on that. In Romans 9, 14. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul continues to write here in verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault in us? For who can resist his will? And that's the question I'm asking right now. Paul's telling him, look, when God wills something, he's going to have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He's going to harden who he wants to harden. What that means is God is going to soften the heart of those he wants to respond in a certain way he does. He's going to harden the heart of those who he doesn't. So that, that is hard for us to wrestle with this idea of free will, right? And, and it's a truth. This idea of free will is, is a real thing that we have to accept. But it's, it's understanding God's role in our free will is really difficult because we do see here that God kind of dictates our free will to some extent because he's the one who wired us. He made me, so he knows exactly, exactly how much persuasion I need in any given area to respond in the way he wants me to. So why didn't he just send me a little more persuasion? Just bump me over that hump, right? God is going to give mercy where he wants to give mercy and harden where he wants to harden. They say to him, well, then why does he still find fault? How can he blame me then if he's the one who's hardening me or giving me mercy? And Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? We don't have to understand why God does what he does. We just have to understand our role before God, that God is the one who determines. And God is good, and God has a perfect plan. Job wrestled with this. Job struggled with this idea. He didn't understand why he was going through what he was going through. And finally, he questioned, God, why are you doing it this way? I trust that you are good, God, but why are you doing it this way? God eventually answered Job. And he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You'll make it known to me. Stand up and answer me. That's what God's telling Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its base sunk? Or who lays its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, you know so much. Tell me. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you're like, God, this doesn't make sense to me. I'm not doing it, right? God is sovereign. God, God really continues to hammer on Joseph. He, he goes through several chapters, several stanzas of this, just telling Joseph, Joseph, I am God. I hung the stars. Joseph, you don't understand how much greater than you I am. Now, as a man, as a human, seeing that in the context of a human through my limited person eyes, that bugs me. It, it, it rubs me wrong that God would treat Job like this. And the reason it rubs me wrong is because I'm a fool. Because I am the created, not the creator. I have no understanding. I can't comprehend the distance between man and God. Isaiah, in chapter uh, 55 of the book of Isaiah, he, he relays God's message that my ways are higher than, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. 
Like the distance from the earth to the heavens, that's how far apart we are in the way we think. So I come at this trying to understand God and his will and his sovereignty and his power and his purpose and what he's done, and I come at it with, with thinking that's this deep. And God has thinking immeasurably greater and deeper than that. And here's the problem with us. When we don't understand, sometimes we give up. When we don't understand why God thinks or does the way he does, we say, you know what, forget it. I'm, not, I'm just not even going to believe in it. Some of you have been there, where you've chosen not to believe in God or to trust God because you can't understand why it's the way it is. You don't have to. You're not called to understand it. You're not going to be able to. Your problem, like me, we don't have the brains capable of it. Even the smartest person on this world is just super stupid compared to God. We don't, have the, we don't have the capacity to understand and comprehend it. And some of you say, well, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me, so there's got to be a better way. Well, you haven't come up with and You didn't really come up with a better alternative. You just kind of didn't answer the question. So if God's not real, if God's not real because I can't understand God, what are you going to believe then? Because I promise you, you can't understand anything else any better as far as your origin, your purpose, why you're here. None of it makes more sense. If you stop believing because you can't understand, that's just being lazy. That's just being lazy. You're not going to understand God. He didn't create you to understand God. He created you to love Him. God is good. God is good. We sang a lot about this today. Um, I don't know if you guys ever noticed, but if you pay attention to the lyrics of the music, they usually are chosen to help facilitate or, or accentuate the message. And, and that's very purposeful, and I appreciate the ladies who choose the songs because they put a lot of thought into that. You heard this message a lot today in the music, that God is good, right? God is good. Psalm 107, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Anybody, raise your hand if you are redeemed of the Lord. Has anyone in here been redeemed by God, been in trouble, been in a difficult circumstance, and been delivered by God? God is good. You can testify that God is good because of what God has done in your life. Here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible cannot prove that God is good. The Bible cannot prove that God is real. But the, God, the Bible informs us of it, and then God, in action in our lives, proves it to us. God is good. God is good because he redeems us. And all of you have been there. Some of you just don't even know it. Some of you don't know that it was God who redeemed you, but God, has, God is the one who has redeemed you. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. That's been some of you. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried before the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul. In the hungry soul, he fills with good things. God is good. Here's the, th here's the trouble, though. Sometimes his goodness is kind of concealed or hidden in our circumstances. We go through difficult circumstances, and we fail to recognize God is good. It would have been so easy for that to happen to Joseph, right? Man, he went through some miserable circumstances. But he recognized God is good, even in all that. Our perspective matters. God is always good. Just last week in small group, we were looking at Luke 15, and we saw that this Luke 15 is where we see the story of the prodigal son, right? So there's a father who loves his sons. He's a wealthy father who provides for his sons. One son says, you know what? I want to take my inheritance. I want to go party. So he takes off. He spends it all. He runs out. And he's empty-handed. He says, I want, to go back. I want to go back to where it was good. The other son stays with his dad the whole time. 
He's there the whole time. But now he's angry because the father welcomes back the little brother. And he's angry that, that the father would give it to him. So what, he didn't deserve this. And the, and the dad says, you've been here the whole time. Everything of mine is yours. How, how have you missed that? How have you missed it the whole time you were here with me that everything that's mine is yours? Both sons were screwed up in their perspective, but their father's love for them was there the whole time. They were just missing it because of their own perspective. How you see your circumstances dictates whether you see God's goodness in it or not. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. Paul is writing that I had this, this thorn in my life and I asked God three times to get rid of it for me. I wanted it gone because it was a, a hindrance to me. And God said, Paul, that's there for a reason. I put that there for you to humble you so you recognize my goodness in your life. That changed Paul's perspective. Once Paul realized that God was doing this good in him, it, 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 he saw the goodness of God in this painful thing in his life. 2 Corinthians 4.17 I'll tell you this, a few years ago, I got to preach out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I got to tell you, it has changed my perspective on a lot of things. It has changed how I look at my, my Christian faith. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 tells us that we've got to focus on the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. It says this light, momentary affliction that you're going through it's just God preparing you for glory. It's, it's, it's nothing compared to what he has in store for you. So your circumstances feel like they're overwhelming you. You're drowning in them. You've been imprisoned falsely. You've been sold into slavery. Your life's going to end. But God is good even in that, and he has a perfect purpose even in that. And you just got to see God at work in your life. God is good good. None of your life's afflictions, probably not a lot of people in here have been sold into slavery. Probably not many of you um, have been falsely imprisoned. Maybe a few of you have, right? But you all have, you all have these afflictions in your life. You've all been through trauma. You've all been through bad news that has wrecked you. You've all been through loss. You've all been through some kind of train wreck in your life. And if you haven't, you're gonna. None of your afflictions, none of those things are meaningless. None of it is meaningless. There's a particular purpose in all those things that you've gone through or will go through. And that purpose is sometimes a difficult process and it doesn't just bring you satisfaction. It may, it may not. We saw in Joseph's life that through this hardship, he eventually rose to power, and, and, and he, was, he was second in command, and he had all the money he wanted and, and had a beautiful wife and two sons. But that wasn't the end of the story. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose for all that was for God to take care of his people, was for God to love his people his kingdom, so that God could be glorified in that. Sometimes we get to experience the blessing following our circumstances like Joseph did. Sometimes we don't, though. Sometimes God's purpose still isn't revealed to us, but he's still using us. God is good. Everything you endure has a specific purpose preparing you for eternity and drawing others to God's eternity also. God's more gooder than you, right? So we can accept that God is good. We can buy into that. We see, I, I reckon, I'll buy that. God is good, yeah. But you're not living it. You're still relying on your own goodness. You're still relying on your own sense of right and wrong. And when something feels wrong to you, you're going to do it your way, not God's way. You're saying, yeah, God is good, but I'm still in control because I'm good, I'm better. I know what works for me, and that doesn't feel right. If you're trusting your feelings instead of God, it ain't going to work out for you. 
We saw repeatedly throughout the story that God was with Joseph. We saw Joseph say, it's not me, but it's God, right? We see Joseph respond to his brothers, it was not you who sent me here. You meant this evil thing, but it wasn't you. It was actually God at work. Joseph recognizes that all his accomplishments, all the good things that were happening were thanks to God at work. It's really easy for me. I am prone to taking credit for what God is doing in my life. I am prone to accepting the glory. I am prone to saying when someone says, hey, you interpreted this dream. I say, yeah, thank you, right? That's my propensity. Instead of saying, no, not me. It's God. It's God. Point to God. We see this. We see this a lot. What if Joseph had complained and grumbled in Potiphar's house? What if he gave in to Potiphar's wife's seduction? What if he became depressed and shut down in prison? What if he told Pharaoh, hey, figure out your own dream, man. You've been stuck in your stupid country for all this time, in prison falsely. Figure out your own dream. That's the natural human response to these circumstances. That's what happens when we rely on our own sense of justice, our own sense of right and wrong. Now, there's a, there's a site we see that, I skipped the slide. Joseph recognized that it was God at work. And there's a, a little quick side point. I'm almost done here. There's a quick side point here um, that's been relevant to me. So th- these brothers, they sold Joseph into slavery. They were going to kill him. And then, and then their mercy, they, they decided, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just send him into slavery. Right? He's imprisoned falsely. He's lied about. He's forgotten. Man, I would be angry. I would be angry. And then when these brothers show up who kind of kick this ball into motion, my anger would certainly get the best of me. I I believe that's probably true. That I, I would not want to forgive them. And their fear that once Jacob was gone, if, if I was the brother, their fear would probably come true. I'd say, I don't need you guys anymore. I'm done with you. You hurt me. You guys hurt me. And that's been really real to me, and I'll confess to you that, that as, as our church has gone through some transition, one of my struggles has been anger, bitterness, because I've been hurt by people. And I hang on to that sometimes, and I don't want to. I don't want to hang on to that. Because what I have to recognize is that people who hurt me, they're not in control. God's in control. God's got a perfect, beautiful plan. And I got to trust that. And I got to understand that God is doing good things and me being angry and bitter and me seeking my own sense of justice, even if I can dress it up in biblical terms, that ain't right. It's not what God calls me to. God wants me to release that and see what he's doing. Trust in his goodness to make good out of the things that are painful in my life. Paul had this same propensity, right? And and so that that thorn in his side, because Paul tells us, preceding that in in 2 Corinthians, he tells us that if I start boasting, I'm not a fool because I got plenty to boast about. But if I start going down that path of of taking pride in my own accomplishments, my own ability, my own self, then I'm going to be derailed from what God is wanting me to do and accomplish. And so God God has blessed me with this thorn in my side to humble me. God is protecting me from myself by giving me that. Don't you realize that God is protecting you also? God is protecting us from ourselves, from our human propensity. God, in his sovereign power, is creator and author of all things. He's good in nature. His nature is good. We, we can say God is sovereign, but still question, but is he good? Like, like I, I get that God is sovereign, but sometimes I want to be mad at him for doing it this way. Don't be, because his way is good. Just because you don't understand it. His character is righteous and perfect. He does not do evil. He does not make mistakes. 
and he loves you. And from his love, he comes alongside you like he was with Joseph. He comes alongside you not to make you comfortable, not to make you successful, not to relieve you from pain or to heal your cancer or make your, your, your hurts go away. That's, that's not why he comes alongside you. He comes alongside you to draw you to him in a loving relationship. That's the point. If you're angry at God because you're hurting, if you're angry at God or you're just not understanding because you're going through a difficult time, that's part of life. That's part of being in a broken, fallen world. It ain't going to be perfect in this life. But God is with you. God is walking you through this. God is orchestrating your life in a way that draws you into him. Walk in God's love even in your dark hard, miserable circumstances because he wants you there. The worst thing you can do is allow your circumstances to dictate whether or not you trust God. You have got to let your trust in God precede your circumstances. You've got to accept the fact that God is sovereign, God is good. If you keep relying on that, keep telling yourself, God is good, God is good, God is good, you will see your circumstances in a different way. I promise you, you will. Let your trust in God dictate how you see your circumstances. Know that he is good, especially when it doesn't make sense. He has this perfect plan, not just for you in this life. If you just see it that way, if you just see God's work in this life, you're going to miss the whole point. The whole story of the nation of Israel, including this bit of Joseph, is, is really not to understand the history of those people's lives, but to see our entire self, our life, told through the story of Israel. They go through a hard life, and God is faithful to them all the time, and eventually God leads them to the promised land. And someday that's going to be you too. That's what God is preparing. He's preparing you to cross over that Jordan into that wonderful, perfect eternity where things are beautiful, where things are good all the time. He's preparing you for that. So trust that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for the way you love us. We trust you, Lord. We know your word is good. We know that you are good in our lives. We just ask that you would continue to work in us, that that trust that faith would become a reality in our hearts. We wouldn't just know it in our brains, Lord, but that you, would, that you would place that faith in our hearts in a way that we just live on that and rely on that and trust that all the time. No matter our circumstances, God, let us see you as good. Let us see you as perfect. Let us see you as greater than us. In your holy name we pray, Lord. Amen.